And in last week's study of chapter two of Exodus, we met Moses, the one who will be the deliverer of the Israelites who are enslaved in Egypt, the one who is the model of our deliverer, Jesus Christ. We learned that Moses was adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh, raised in the royal palace, and expected to become the next Pharaoh. But Moses rejected that opportunity, choosing instead to identify himself as a Hebrew and with the Hebrew people who were enslaved in Egypt. We know from Hebrews 11 that Moses' parents feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. So in all likelihood, they would have circumcised Moses on the eighth day, which means that he would have realized that he was different to the other Egyptian boys as soon as he was old enough to play one of these things is not like the others. By the time he was 40, Moses was aware, we know for sure by 40, that the Lord had placed a calling on his life to deliver his people, the Israelites, from Egypt. Taking matters into his own hands, Moses intervened when he saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating an Israelite slave, and he murdered the Egyptian. To his horror, Moses learned the next day that there had been witnesses to his crime, which was a capital offense in the country of Egypt. This means that Pharaoh had to seek to kill Moses, and he did, and Moses had to flee for his life into the wilderness of Midian, where he ended up staying in the house of the high priest of Midian after chasing off some bully shepherds who were harassing the seven daughters of this priest of Midian. And as we pick up our story in Exodus 3, Stephen, the apostle, tells us in Acts chapter 7 that Moses has been busy living in Midian now for 40 years. He left Egypt fleeing for his life when he was 40, and he's now been in Midian in his own state of exile for 40 years. In that time, he's been married, he's had two boys, he's kept busy with the everyday life of a shepherd. Joseph's brothers were shepherds, and when they moved to Egypt, he told them how the Egyptians felt about shepherds. I wonder if you remember what he said. I put it on your outlines. Joseph told his brothers, every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians, an abomination. There's no occupation they felt was lower than being a shepherd. Moses was raised like an Egyptian for 40 years, so culturally, even though he was a Hebrew, going from the palace of the most powerful kingdom in the world at that time all the way down to becoming a shepherd must have seemed about as far as a man could fall. And yet, as we discovered last week, Moses found contentment in Midian, living for the future kingdom of God, what is to come rather than the treasures of this world. Well, in order to more fully understand something that's going to come up in the text, we have to jump ahead into the text a little bit and talk about the name of God, the name of God. The word God is not a name. God is a title. Our study today is going to include Moses and the famous burning bush. And if you're like, it can't be that famous because I've never heard of it. Don't worry about it. We're going to walk through the story together in today's study. When we get to verse 14 of chapter 3, God is going to tell Moses that his name is I am who I am. I am who I am. God reveals his name in the first person form. In Hebrew, it's ayah, hayah, ayah. I am to be, I am. 
He speaks his name in the first person form with the singular form of the verb that means to be. It's a statement of of self-existence. So in other words, it's a denial of being created by any other power or force. It's a statement from God that he just is. He has no origin. He was not created or brought about by anyone else or any other process. He is the process and the power at the beginning behind everything else. He's the alpha. He's the omega. I am who I am is what's known as the divine name of God, the divine name. But over 6,800 times in the original Hebrew text of the Old Testament, the divine name does not appear as it does in Hebrews 3.14. It appears as something very different. Why is that? Well, here in Exodus 3.14, as we said, God is stating his name himself. So it's in the first person form. Whereas almost everywhere else in the Old Testament, the divine name is in the third person form. This is very specific in the Hebrew. It's a very, very different thing when I'm saying my own name or you're saying my name. It's not just Jeff and Jeff. In Hebrew, there's an actual difference between the first person when I'm talking about my name and the third person when you're talking about my name. If you or I were using the name of God in a sentence, we would be using it in the third person form because we would be talking about God. Out of reverence, the Hebrews developed a belief that God's name was so holy, it should never even be spoken aloud in its full form. It is ineffable. It is the unspeakable name of God. It's that holy. So what they did is they removed all the vowels from God's name, leaving only the consonants, which were the famous Y-H-W-H, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh in Hebrew. Those four letters are known as the sacred tetragrammaton, Tetragrammaton, impress your friends at parties. Tetragrammaton simply means four letters, four letters, tetragrammaton. The only person who would speak God's name out loud would be the high priest who would usher it in the holy of holies in the temple once a year on Yom Kippur. That's according to the Mishnah. So we don't don't know emphatically that that's true, but we have no reason to doubt that. It's most likely that when speaking, Jews didn't say yod heh vav They didn't say, oh, you know, I had uh, praise Y-H-W-H. They, they wouldn't have said that. It's most likely that they used the Hebrew word Hashem to refer to the divine name. Hashem just means the name in Hebrew. So they would refer to Hashem. Because writing words without vowels is just weird, Jewish scribes decided to add some vowels back into the name of God, but out of reverence, they said, but, but we can't use the actual vowels for the name of God because then we're using the full name of God and that would be irreverent. So let's use the vowels from another word and we'll put them in to replace the ones that we took out of the name of God. So they took this other word, Adonai, which means Lord, and they took the vowels from Adonai and put it with the yod heh vav the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, to create this new hybrid word. So it was the name of God, but not actually the name of God, and it had consonants and vowels. Everyone still tracking with me? This new sort of hybrid word. So now with only the high priest speaking the name of God out loud once a year in the Holy of Holies where nobody else could hear him, 
and as those who remembered when the divine name had been spoken out loud beginning to die out over time, and as things like the Babylonian exile happened and the first temple destruction took place, the original divine name of God, the third person name of God that you and I would use was lost to history. And to this day, scholars debate what the original divine name of God was in the third person. For a long time, people were sure that it should be pronounced Yehovah or Jehovah. Then it's actually only been for about five decades, now five or six decades, that people began to say, well, I think it should actually be pronounced Yahweh. That's a relatively recent thing. The latest scholarship doesn't tell us for sure what it should be, but the latest scholarship does tell us that in reality, it's almost definitely not pronounced Yehovah or Yahweh, which would be a real bummer if you had built an entire religion on the name of Jehovah specifically. (laughs) Something that struck my mind. Fortunately, that's not us. But again, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And I really want to stress this. It doesn't make any theological difference to us today because God has made himself known to us in a far more clear way in our age through another name, Jesus Christ. We know the name of God, it's Jesus Christ. Well, Christ is his title, Jesus is his name. One thing you do need to know, and this is interesting and I think this will be helpful for you as you study your Bibles on your own. When the divine name appears in the Old Testament of our Bibles, that hybrid word, the Yote Vave, the sacred tetragrammaton with the vowels from Adonai added back in. Whenever that term for the divine name, any reference to the divine name shows up in your Old Testaments and mine in our Bibles, it appears as the word Lord in all caps. If you've ever wondered why you have everything in normal sentence case and then you get to the word Lord and it's in all caps, it's not just a straight reverence thing, it's because that is the specific divine name of the Lord in the original language, in the original scripts. You're gonna need to understand the concept of the divine name in order to really grasp what's going on at the burning bush. So let's jump in. Exodus chapter three, verse one, it says, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Just another everyday event in the life of Moses at this point, taking care of the sheep. And again, real quick, I just want to address something. Moses' father-in-law was called Ruel in chapter two, and now he's called Jethro here in chapter three. Believe me when I say we could do a whole study on why that is, but all you really need to know is that Ruel and Jethro, they're the same guy. Both names refer to Moses' father-in-law. And then it says, and he, that's Moses, led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, if you've ever read the book of Exodus before or seen any of the movies, the Charlton Heston movie or anything like that, then you know that everything in Exodus is heading towards events at Mount Sinai, which is generally considered the mountain of God. The consensus view is that like Ruel and Jethro, Horeb and Sinai are references to the same mountain. Now there is a possibility as well that Horeb refers to a region because the word Horeb literally means dry place while Sinai refers to a specific mountain. In Acts chapter seven, Stephen describes this location where Moses is right now as the wilderness of Mount Sinai. But again, all you really need to understand is that Horeb and Sinai are ultimately references to the same mountain. Don't go on some 
years-long treasure hunt to try and solve that. It really doesn't matter. And Horeb slash Sinai are going to feature so prominently in the Exodus narrative that people naturally want to know, well, where is it? When you read about the events that take place at Mount Sinai, you kind of think, wow, I mean, there could be some special treasure there, perhaps some incredible evidence. Maybe the energy in the area feels charged and supernatural. Whatever the reason is, people are very, very curious about where is this mountain of God in real life in our day and age? And so it spawned all kinds of videos that you can find online and all kinds of horribly inaccurate videos that you can find online. The problem is that almost none of them interact with all of the data given to us in the Bible. Forget the data outside of the Bible. Almost none of them interact with all of the data given to us in the scriptures. In fact, the two most popular locations that are generally suggested for Mount Sinai, they're called Jebel Musa and Jebel Allahs, do not work with the information the Bible gives us. They're essentially sort of like if you go to Israel and you go to the tourist sites that are sacred sites, but you realize there's no way that this could actually be the location described in the Bible. If you're a Christian, you might have heard about Jebel Allahs in northwest Saudi Arabia, and here's why, I'll tell you why you've probably heard about it. It's the mountain that some Christian researchers, and I use the term loosely, get very excited about because the summit consists mainly of metamorphosed rocks caused by an old volcano. And so, of course, people go like, oh, wow, this would explain the, the smoke and the fiery presence of God, which the Israelites encounter at Sinai later in the book of Exodus. As I said, this gets many Christians excited, but when you stop and think about it, it's only because it provides a naturalistic explanation for what the Israelites saw at Mount Sinai. And if you believe in God, you don't need a naturalistic explanation. God is the explanation. He can do whatever he wants, wherever he wants. It's not like God is like, I'm gonna come down and visit my people. But there has to be a volcano there, otherwise I just can't get the smoke thing going. That's not how God works. He does what he wants, where he wants, the way he wants. And as I mentioned, the location simply doesn't work with everything the Bible tells us about the location of Mount Sinai. So keeping my commitment I made in the first message to try and give you just the bottom line, and I'm really trying to do that. I put a map on your outlines. I know it's a little hard to read, but we'll put it up on the screen too. It shows you where Mount Sinai is most likely based based on the data that we have in the Bible. So today, just to give you an idea where everything is, they have the, the big box labeled Midian. That would be in Saudi Arabia, southern parts of Jordan, and maybe a, a sliver of western Iraq. That's about the part of the Middle East that the territory that is biblical Midian would encompass. Jabal al-Laws, you can see it sort of just above the word Midian there. Jabal al-Laws is located in Saudi Arabia today. And if you look west of Midian, you can see that other green rectangle, even if you can't read the little word in there. But across the Gulf of Aqaba, and then further west across the Sinai Peninsula, you get to the area where the biblical Mount Sinai is most likely located. It's a fairly big area, but it fits all the specifications, and the people who do this seriously, they don't say it's this specific peak. They just say, this is what we can know. It's, it's, it's in this area according to all the biblical criteria, and that's present-day Egypt. And again, I should mention, with this as well, the location of Mount Sinai doesn't change anything. 
It has no bearing on theology or the reliability of the Bible or, or anything like that. And in my opinion, there are so many better things worth researching in your Bible study time than the location of Mount Sinai. So what Moses does is he takes the flock of Jethro that he's shepherding and he leads them a long, long way to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. Why? Why does he do that? We don't actually know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but there's a couple of very simple explanations. One could be that Midian is a wilderness area, and so if you have a dry time and you've got sheep, you've got to go looking for food. So we could have been looking for food and just had to go that far to get there. But I never want to disqualify the other obvious reason he might have done it is just that the Lord might have prompted him to do it. The Lord put the thought in his head, made it seem like a good idea, got Moses to where he wanted him to be. Could be just that simple. Then we go on into verse 2 and we read, you're going to get ready to underline something here. And the angel of the Lord, underline the angel of the Lord. That's literally the angel of Yahweh in the original Hebrew. Appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst, underline the midst of a bush. So he, Moses, looked and behold, and then underline all this here. The bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I'll now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So Moses comes across this bush that is on fire. That's not unusual in the wilderness. These things get struck by lightning and catch fire all the time. They're very dry. The land is very flat. They're the highest object in many places in the wilderness, so they get struck by lightning. Or nomads will often burn them as an easy-to-use campfire at night, and they could have just left it burning when they went on their way in the morning. What catches Moses' eye is not the fire. What catches his eye is that this bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. It's not being consumed. And who does Moses see in the midst of the burning bush that we underlined? He sees the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. In the original Hebrew, the term the angel of Yahweh, or however Yahweh is supposed to be pronounced, means that this angel, what it means, what it implies, is that this angel has the name of God in him. Or to put it more clearly, the glory of God is found in him. That's what that term means when it says the angel of Yahweh. Now whenever we encounter the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, who is the text actually referring to? Who is it? It's Jesus. That's right. It's a Christophany. It's a physical appearance of pre-incarnate Jesus. It's a physical appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament before he came to the earth as the man Jesus. So write this down and we'll keep exploring this. In the Old Testament, every appearance of the angel of the Lord, not an angel, but the angel of the Lord, is a Christophany, a physical appearance of pre-incarnate Jesus. Now we keep going and it says in verse 4, so when the Lord, is the word Lord in all caps in your Bible there? It should be. When the Lord, it's the divine name for God, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God, that's going to be the Hebrew word Elohim, that plural term for God that refers to the Trinity, called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take off your sandals for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
The narrative link being made here is that God remembers all the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and he's going to use Moses to continue to fulfill those promises. Then we read, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now all five appearances of the word God in verse six are Elohim in the original Hebrew. It's not the divine name and it's not the angel of the Lord. It's Elohim. Okay, Jeff, so you know a few basic Hebrew words. That's great. We're all very impressed. Where are you going with all this? Well, here's the point. Here's the point. The original Hebrew text clearly distinguishes the presence of two persons in the burning bush. The angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, appears to Moses, quote, in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush, while Yahweh, Elohim, called to him, from the midst of the bush. Now just note that Moses was not afraid to look at the bush, he was afraid to look upon God. That means there was something physically visible in the bush, why? Because you're not afraid to look at something that's invisible, right? He could see something that filled him with awe and reverence and fear. Now back in verse five, the angel of the Lord told Moses, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. And this is how you do Bible detective work. So we stop and we think, wait a minute, wait a minute. That sounds familiar. It sounds familiar. Doesn't something like that happen somewhere else in scripture? And it does. Pretty much verbatim, there is an appearance by the one we would call the angel of the Lord, a Christophany, to the man Joshua in Joshua chapter five. And Jesus appears to him as the commander of the army of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is using identical verbiage intentionally. He's using it intentionally. That commander of the Lord's army says to Joshua, take off your sandals for the place you're standing, our holy ground. So what the Holy Spirit wants us to do is he wants us to connect these two events. That's why he made them have the same verbiage so that we would understand that this is Jesus appearing in a similar way in both instances. And when I say similar, I mean in the flesh, visibly. He appeared visibly as a man to Joshua and he appeared visibly as a man in the bush to Moses. This means that in all likelihood, Moses glimpsed Jesus in the form of a man, as I just said, as Joshua did and just as King Nebuchadnezzar did when he saw the fourth man walking around the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter three. Now hang with me. The original Hebrew word for bush that's used here in Exodus three only appears one other place in the Bible. That's worth checking out. And it's in Deuteronomy 33, 16. It happens when Moses is blessing the children of Israel before he dies, he's blessing the tribe of Joseph and he refers to the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. The Hebrew word used in the phrase him that dwelt is the Hebrew word shachen. Shachen, from where we get the Hebrew word Shekinah, Shekinah. And if you're not familiar with the term Shekinah, if you grew up Pentecostal, you are familiar with the word Shekinah, trust me. But if you're not, if you were spared that, it refers to the manifest 
presence of God's glory, the perceivable presence of God's glory. Examples of the Shekinah glory of God in the Old Testament would be things like the way the Holy of Holies or the temple or the tabernacle would sometimes fill with the smoke of God's presence. It was the visible glory of God. It will be the pillar of fire and the cloud that guides the Israelites through the desert by night and by day. That would be examples of the Shekinah glory of God. So again, what the Holy Spirit is doing is telling us to connect the dots, in this case between Exodus 3 and Deuteronomy 33, so that we can understand that when it says Elohim was in the burning bush, when it says that the divine name spoke from within the burning bush, so that we would understand from Deuteronomy 33 that the Shekinah glory of God was present in the burning bush. In fact, the Shekinah glory of God was in all likelihood the fire that was perceivable. It was the glory of God appearing as fire just as it would to guide the Israelites through the wilderness later on. So my belief is that what Moses would have glimpsed in the burning bush was the Shekinah glory of God in the form of the fire and the presence of Jesus in the form of the angel of the Lord. There's no wonder he was afraid to look at it. No wonder. And as always, you can come to your own conclusions on that. So write, write this down. The text seems to indicate the presence of two persons in the burning bush in the form of Jesus and the Shekinah glory of God. Jesus and the Shekinah glory of God. Now there's something else interesting in this as well. In the scriptures, when fire shows up, it generally represents God's presence and or God's judgment and or purification. Now think with me, we we have a bush that is full of God's glory and Jesus himself. God is present in this bush and this bush is on fire. Symbolically it's being judged and yet it is not being consumed. It's not being consumed. Really think about this. So the presence of God could could have just appeared as a floating ball of fire, but it's located in the midst of an object. That's not an accident. On a symbolic level, in terms of biblical imagery, what's going on here is, is this bush is being judged. That's the picture that's being represented here, but it's not being consumed. The imagery here is that God's presence is judging sin, but the object of judgment is not being consumed. In our first message in Exodus, we talked about how the whole book is a picture of how the gospel works in our lives. And the burning bush is foreshadowing that again, because well over a thousand years after Moses encounters the angel of the Lord and Elohim in the burning bush, Jesus would come to the earth as a man and sin would be judged by God. Only the object of judgment, the human race, would not be consumed because Jesus became the object of judgment in our place. Jesus came to the earth as a man so that sin could be judged once and for all, and it was. But the ones who were the object of judgment, you and I, were not consumed because Jesus took our place as the object of judgment. So in this picture, we are the burning bush. Jesus has come to us. Our sin has been judged, yet we are not consumed. Instead, instead, We are full of the presence of God. Jesus is in our midst, among us.
So write this down. Like the burning bush, Jesus and God's presence have come to us and judged our sin, yet we have not been consumed. We've not been consumed. Then we read in verse 7, And the Lord said, now track with me here. I'm going to put some emphasis on some things. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. That just means it's a place of agricultural prosperity, good for raising cattle and farming to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Moses at this point is like, praise God, yes, Lord, do it. And then God drops this bomb. He says, come now, therefore, and I, yes, Lord, come on, will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Yes, Lord, wait, what? What? Me? You you want me to go before Pharaoh? You know I'm still a wanted murderer in Egypt, right? And you want me to go before Pharaoh? And I don't think he's going to be happy to see me. And I'm going to guess that whatever you're going to tell me to do is not going to be something that he's going to want to hear. So why exactly won't Pharaoh just have me killed on the spot? And I find this very relatable. Not that I'm wanted for murder anywhere, but in other ways, there are, there are so many situations and so many lives that I would love to see God work in. There are so many things and situations and people that I am praying to see God work in. And I think we all have things that we long to see God do, but we don't really want to be used by God to do. Whether we don't want to deal with the difficulties or sacrifices or whether we just lack confidence, there are things that we want to see God do, but we don't really want to be used by God to do. And here's a simple reminder that I need, and maybe you need it too. Write this down. We can't claim to have a heart for something or someone if we're unwilling to be used by God to minister to that something or someone. Can't claim to have a heart for something or someone if we're unwilling to be used by God to minister to that something or someone. Now please understand, I'm not saying, I think people are wrong when they say like, well, you don't have a heart for it unless you're doing something about it. That's unbiblical. What we need to do is make ourselves available to the Lord so that if he asks us to, we obey him. As I pray for that thing or that person, I need to make myself available to the Lord for service and say, Lord, if you want to use me in some way, to minister to this person, to minister into this situation. Lord, Lord, I don't, I don't know how that would work, but I'm available. That's what we need to do. That's the posture we need to have. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God, I'm scared. I'm nervous. I, I don't know what to do. I've been a shepherd for 40 years. I haven't been in high society for four decades. I'm not royalty anymore. I'll be out of my element. No one's going to listen to me. I, I, I can't. I, I just can't. And that's our reaction too, right? The Lord says, well, well go and speak to them. Go, go have a conversation with them. And we say, Lord, I'm, I'm not an expert in apologetics. I'm not, I'm not a trained counselor. I don't have the Bible memorized. My spouse says I'm a terrible listener. I mean, who am I? 
that there's got to be somebody better you can use, Lord. There's got to be somebody, somebody more qualified who would better represent you and your kingdom. Now notice what the Lord says. He's not going to tell Moses, yes, you can. Yes, you can, Moses. He's not going to tell him, here's the thing, Moses. I made you to be the head and not the tail. I made you to be a champion. I made you to be a winner. So come on, Moses. Live up to your calling. He's not going to boost Moses' self-esteem and say, here's the thing, Moses. you got to believe in yourself because I already believe in you. doesn't do that. In fact, God's not even going to disagree with Moses' inference that he's horribly unqualified for this task. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Oh, you're nobody, Moses. There's really no reason why Pharaoh should fear you or why he should listen to you. What does the Lord say to calm Moses' fears? Get ready to underline this. Love verse 12. So he, the Lord, said, I will certainly be with you. I will certainly be with you. The issue isn't who you are, Moses. The issue is who I am. And I am that I am. And I'm with you. And that's the whole message right there, isn't it? That's a whole message right there. Not my whole message, so don't get your hopes up. But it could be a whole message. I'm not going to elaborate on that too much because I think it's just so powerful as it's written, and the Holy Spirit's gonna show you where this applies to your life and where you need to hear this, the area of your life where you need to apply this. So write this down. The issue isn't who I am. The issue is who God is and that he's with me. It's who God is that matters and that he's with me. God's response to Moses blesses me so much. It just encourages me because here's what else I noticed. Before the task, before the project, before the undertaking, from God's perspective, only two things are needed. The first thing that's needed is he provides the promise that he'll be with us. He says, this is the first thing you need. You just need to know that I'm promising I'll be with you. The second thing that's needed is he expects us to provide the faith in his promise. He says, I'll make the promise. Your job is to believe in the promise that I've made. That's it. He says everything else will work out along the way. He provides the promise. It's our job to believe the promise. So write this down. When God calls us to step out, he provides the promise, and it's our job to believe the promise. Our job to believe the promise. And then God says, and this shall be a sign to you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God. In other words, you'll worship me on this mountain, this same mountain. When Moses said, God, I need a sign. God says, I'll, I'll give you a sign. Here's your sign. After I've done everything that I said I would do, you will stand right where you're standing right now. You'll worship me because you'll look back at everything I've done and you'll praise me because I did everything that I said I would do. And I love that because one of the primary ways we grow in faith is by finally starting to remember all the times in our lives that we've been able to praise the Lord for keeping his promises. And we know we're growing in faith when we finally start praising God for simply making the promise, for giving the promise, because we finally grow in our faith to the point where we realize that if he's made the promise, 
He's already kept the promise. He's already kept it. It's as good as done. It's future history. And when we do things like worship the Lord, even at places here like church, some people, some of you, worship on a different level because you understand that you're thanking God in advance for keeping the promises that he's given you in his word. You're thanking him in advance. You're not singing, Lord, Lord, I hope you keep your promise. You're not doing that. You're actually saying, Lord, thank you. You will. You'll do everything that you said you would do. I love that. God, give me a sign. Here's your sign. There'll come a day when you'll worship me at this exact spot and praise me for doing everything I told you you would do. That'll be your sign. Then you can look back and remember this conversation. He provides the promise and it's our job to believe the promise. God has seen, God has heard, and he knows. He knows. God had seen, he had heard, and he knew everything the Israelites were going through. God has seen, God has heard, and God knows everything you're going through. And so what does he say? He says, so I have come down. I've come down. We don't serve a God who's passive and indifferent to our sufferings and our challenges and our difficulties, whatever they are. He's not indifferent. He came down in the form of a man, Jesus. God came to us. We're about to begin the whole Advent season, which I love more every year that I'm alive because it blows my mind more and more every year, just the simple reality that God came to us. God became a man. He came to us. I'll never get over that. He came to us. And while he ascended to heaven, he left his spirit with us so that we would never be without him. And he's here and he's among us and he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. It's not about who you are. It's about who he is and that he's with you, that he's in you right now. Don't put your hope and your confidence in yourself. Don't say, Lord, just remind me how good you've made me. Lord, just remind me how great I am. Lord, just speak to my soul, boost my self-esteem. You don't need to do that. Peace is found in saying, Lord, give me a greater revelation of you. Who, Who are you? If you want a greater revelation of God, ask. What does the word say? You do not have because you do not ask. Moses asked the Lord, what's your name? What's your name? The Lord says, I am that I am. We're going to study that more next week. And the interesting thing is that Moses will say, Lord, Lord, what's your name? If they ask me when I go to the Israelites and I tell them that you've sent me, they'll they'll say, who sent you? What's, What's his name? What should I tell them? God says, I am that I am. They'll never ask Moses, what's the Lord's name? They'll never ask. Moses just wanted to know. The Lord knew that they would never ask. But Moses said, I want to understand you more. I want a greater revelation of you. What's your name? And God told him, if you want a greater revelation of God, just ask. Thank him in advance that whatever situation you're facing, if you believe that promise and stand in faith, you will one day find yourself thanking the Lord for keeping his promise. Believe that. Don't be slow to learn that. Maybe like me, you'll just get tired of putting your foot in your mouth and saying, Lord, I just don't know if you're going to come through. Oh, yeah, you came through again for like the 9,000th time. I think there might be a pattern here. Could be a pattern. 
So let's begin to thank the Lord in faith in advance. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the promises of your word. Thank you for the reminders of your word, Lord, that remind us that you are the God who keeps his promises. You don't depend on anyone or anything else for your existence. You are the Alpha. You're the Omega. You're before everything. And you will have preeminence in everything. You are above all things. But even though we have no right to expect you to be concerned with our lives, you are. You're the God who sees. You're the God who hears. You're the God who understands. And you're the God who's come down to minister to us. You've already healed us of our greatest issue. The sentence of sin which destined us for death. And Lord, we have not been consumed because Jesus became the object of judgment in our place. You're the God who provides whatever is needed. And so Lord, we thank you right now. Whatever situations we're facing in our life, we thank you in advance for keeping your promises. That's not the question, Lord. What we pray and ask for is that you would empower us to stand in faith while we wait for the fulfillment of those promises. Help us to honor you as you deserve to be honored in the waiting, Lord. And then, Father, I pray for, for any among us who would desire a greater revelation of you. Lord, would you give it? Would you give us a greater revelation of you? We know that none of us has come anywhere close to exhausting your glory and the riches of your character. So Lord, once more, would you turn like a diamond in the light and show us a slightly different angle of who you are and captivate us all over again. Give us a greater revelation of you and of your glory, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.